Oh, hi. I didn't see you there. Come on over. Come on in. Do you come here often? What even is here? I'm a yawn. Oh, man. Could I do this without yawning? I didn't see you there. Come on over. Come on in. Do you, do you, how do people say it? Do you come here often? What even is here? Here, right now, here is a podcast called Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis. Or just call it Everything's Relative. That's fine. <laughs> we, um, we don't need to tack on my name like I'm somebody. Uh, I'm definitely nobody, but I am the host. Uh, my name is Eve Sturgis. So five years ago, I discovered that the man who raised me is not my biological father. And then while I was free falling through the existential identity universe, vacuum, black hole, I found out that this happens all the time, all the time. So I made a podcast about it. Whether you're new here or you've been here the whole time, welcome. Thank you for coming. I hope you're learning about yourself and about the world. Is that what I hope? Is that what I hope? I hope you're learning about yourself and about the world. It's that kind of a platitude that doesn't say anything. But anyway, welcome. <laughs> today, today is September 8th. Uh, not for me, not for me today for me. When I was recording this into a microphone for September, like right now where I am, it was a different day. But for you, for all intents and purposes, the day this podcast drops into the podcast universe, it is September 8th. It is episode 99. If you're thinking, when on earth did I start counting all the episodes consecutively throughout the seasons? The answer is just very recently when I realized I was close to 100. <laughs> the moment that Michelle contacted me and said she wanted to talk about her DNA discovery, I knew she would be episode 99. I don't know why, but I did. Also, I didn't time it this way, but um, it's like a little, it's a little bit perfect. And maybe sh she'll get this because we, we talked about this if she's listening to hear it's Anyway, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that it's perfect to hear her story on this Friday, September 8th, after Labor Day weekend, because we talked about her island in Maine being a summer destination. And I just imagine that last weekend was when it starts to shut down for the season. No more white pants or whatever it is, whatever it is they say and do out there. Um, anyway, I want to get to Michelle's story because I want to talk about it with you after you've heard it. Sometimes I tell you to listen for something specific, but not today. All of it is wonderful. Let's get to it. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Michelle, you're calling in from Maine. Yes. But that's not where you grew up. That's right. Grew up in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. So why don't you tell me um, a little bit like what it was like growing up and who your parents were and what that relationship was like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll get to your your surprise and what the fallout of that has been or or what the results of that have been. I am I think you know the the basic storytelling format that we use here, but um yeah, yeah. But I think for some reason, I was thinking about you this morning and on my walk back from dropping the kids off, it really feels important for some reason to me mm-hmm. to have you tell the story more. About, I want to know more about your, your childhood and your relationship yeah. with your parents before the yeah. discovery, before we get to that part. Okay. Great. Okay, good. All right. I'm going to go yeah. dive in. Yeah, dive in. In Atlanta, what was it like? Yeah, yeah. Right. So I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. And I think I was pretty young when I realized I wished I hadn't been born in Atlanta. It never felt right to me. I uh, My mother took me to New York when I was in the first grade, so maybe around six years old or so, and I fell in love with it. I loved the idea of a big bustling city where you could ride taxi cabs and subways and buses and just a, such a different way of life. And it was just so exciting. And and I think I particularly liked just having so many people around. Um, I went on in later years, I'll talk about my childhood, but I went on in later years to live in New York for 10 years. And I have always said that those years, I felt like I was living in a small town. And I know that sounds odd because it's New York City and I was in Manhattan. But um just that sense of there's people all around you, like you, you know, there's kind of a sense of community on my block. I knew each person in the different kinds of business or shop. And, uh, and while on the one hand, neighbors could be very anonymous and not particularly friendly, there were also those who were really nurturing and protective and close. And, you know, so growing up in Atlanta, even though I lived in the city, but Atlanta is one of those cities where you can feel very suburban within the city. I was just about um, to ask. I was like, I don't, I guess yeah, I don't, I yeah. don't know Atlanta very well. Yeah. It would be okay. like there are parts of LA that are like that. Mm-hmm. And I think parts of probably Dallas, Houston, you know, there's some cities where you are absolutely in the city limits. You're maybe 10 minutes from the true downtown heart of the city, uh, maybe very close to like a, a bustling midtown commercial district. Um, but you're in neighborhoods that, I mean, Atlanta is a beautiful city. There's um, there's so many trees, green spaces um, in many neighborhoods that have you know, beautiful houses, especially really old ones, not the kind of newer McMansions, but, you know, <laughs> beautiful houses. So I grew up on, um, you know, not some enormous estate or piece of property, but, you know, we had a, a large front and backyard with lots of grass and trees and hundreds of azalea plants and literally thousands of daffodils in the spring. I mean, it was a really, it was a gorgeous old um, uh, French style ar- architecture style house. And uh, so it was a you know really pretty neighborhood, but it was just very quiet. You know, they're just sort of winding roads. 
feels kind of rural. Um, and I was so lonely. I was an only child and I was really overprotective. I mean, my mother was just like pathologically overprotective um, to the point that, I mean, it, it sounds like you want to get the violins out and play them like such a little, you know, sort of cliche sob story. But I could, I was not allowed to a certain point in our driveway. And I would literally stand there and hear children playing across the street. And I was not allowed to go play with them. Oh, there was a big family across the street. There were others down the street. I wasn't, I wasn't allowed. My mother just was, um, really paranoid about things that could happen. Could she, could she able to say what she was scared of? Every once in a while it would be something specific, but it was always, even as a young child, I've found it kind of irrational. Um, you know, it would be, I could get hit by a car crossing the street. Um, I, the, she was certain that all other parents were way too lax with their kids and not attentive enough climbing with knives and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. They, they wouldn't even have to be knives. They climb trees over there. You might fall out of the tree. Um, or, um, and then of course, if there were older, um, if there were boys in the family who were older than I am, she wouldn't get too explicit, especially when I was younger, but she would, you know, insinuate that they could be inappropriate with me. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's scary for her. I'm thinking about her. I mean, I'm uh, yeah, yeah, terrific right. for you. Ter I mean, I'm so sorry that you were so lonely and isolated. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, I would say that's more extreme than super cliche. But, mm -hmm. um, but I'm just thinking about how hard that would be to be that scared all the time. Yes, for your child, so right? Like so yeah. anxious, very yeah. like anxiety. Obviously, an anxiety disorder of some kind. Exactly, and it made me very anxious. I don't think it. I don't think it really played out. I think I ma I managed it pretty well, but it, you know, I was I did well in school. I did have friends, but they were mostly close friends at school or they could come over and play or you know, in selected cases I could go to friends' houses. And you know, so I was pretty well adjusted socially, amazingly. <laughs> I don't know how. Um but yeah, at home it was just bizarre and I would be so scared at night. I was convinced our house was going to burn down or that we would you know robbers would come in. I I would sit there in bed and like come up with all these escape plans and things. I had all these elaborate plans in place for all these catastrophes that could have happened. And luckily I had a you know an an event pretty event-free uh, or traumatic event-free childhood in the sense of none of that ever happened. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of what, what was your dad doing all this time? Yeah. So my dad was um, so different from my mother because my mother, in addition to being overprotective, she was very, very strict, very harsh, sort of moody. I never really knew, you know, who I was going to get. Um, when I would be home from school or walking into a room where she was. And um, my father was the total opposite. He was sweet and loving and kind of goofy and funny. And, uh, but he just couldn't stand up to her. And he, I don't know that he even tried. So, you know, he went along with it. Um, I mean, he would occasionally try to I don't know, do things with me, take me places, you know, help me feel a little more normal. But um, she was, for much of my life, she was a full-time stay-at-home parent and he worked as a dentist. So he would go off to his office every day and 
And so, you know, she was the one who really ruled the roost when it came to parenting me. Even the windows of our house were nailed shut. Oh. Yeah, you couldn't open a window. Wow. <laughs> so I had uh, from probably also around first grade up until I, well, up until 12th grade in high school, I rode horses. That was my hobby. That was my sport, really. And that was really the only outlet where I had occasions to kind of be more like a normal kid. But even then, I didn't usually get to do the things that my friends who were riding could do. Uh, we'd be together not only during the week having lessons or, you know, with our trainers, but then we would go to horse shows on the weekends that often involved a little bit of travel, mostly around the Southeast. And, you know, my parents would always go. Other friends got to go without their parents sometimes because some of the parents didn't want to go on a trip every weekend. And so they would, it would almost be like carpooling to a horse show, mm -hmm. except it involved mm -hmm. staying in a hotel or something. And I never got to go without my parents there because that too, even though I rode horses and I jumped over fences on them, I was terrified I was going to fall off and have an accident because my mother would, she would just lecture me about, uh, she would fixate on accidents that had happened and you know, refer to somebody, you know, so-and-so, she's paralyzed now. And <laughs> so. Wow. Um, that's amazing. So, I, I was thinking about the, 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 I was, as you were telling that story, I was like, I was thinking about the tree climbing and thinking, uh -huh. okay, she couldn't mm -hmm. climb trees, but she could ride these horses. Right. So that's so interesting that you could, but she brought the anxiety with it. <laughs> she, she did. And I could do that because she was very into social status and very into appearances. And we were not an old money family, but she, we had all the trappings of it. She, you know, my father was comfortable being in terms of his income being a dentist, but, you know, he wasn't like a major business tycoon or, you know, wealthy partner in a law firm or something or surgeon like, you know, some of my parents' friends. But we were certainly very comfortable. And so my mother, you know, milk that for all it was worth. And she had this uncanny ability to really pass as like old money, blue blood kind of person. And, you know, high society, it, it, it never, she'd grown up relatively comfortable, but not in a, in a small town in Louisiana. And so, uh, you know, she had certainly not been exposed to the society of, you know, a Southern city and, and, um, Somehow she just managed to to mas have us masquerade in that world. So, um, so you know, the whole horse show scene was she was all over that. Horses trump tree climbing always. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So that I mean, that's of course there's lots more to my upbringing and childhood, but those are the things that really stand out. I just I felt really kind of trapped, lonely. Mm. Uh, made me feel sort of like a misfit, you know, never really learned how to interact with peers um, my age. And, and yeah, you know, there were advantages. I mean, I am very grateful for growing up in a comfortable environment where, you know, I, I would, looking back, I do consider my mother's treatment of me emotional abuse, but certainly there's worse abuse. I had a loving father and, you know, had kind of everything I asked for, you know, uh, nice trips, nice vacations, beautiful bedroom, um, you know, horses. And interestingly, I never asked for a horse or a pony. It was all my mother. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't even really enjoy it all that much. Um, so, you know, so I look back though and also realized that being having to spend so much time alone made me a good reader, made me love books, made me able to just be with myself. It, you know, helped me learn to think. And, um, you know, so I do know that some of my strengths that I have as an adult came from that kind of upbringing. And, uh, but it was not easy. Yeah. And it takes some work sometimes to get to that point of it. You know, you got to go through the, through, through acknowledging how hard it was before you can really appreciate or accept um, some, some of the, yeah, the skills or the strengths. You described that really well. Yeah. I was going to say benefits, but that's not really what I want to, that's not really the word I want, but yeah, the skills, you it nurtured some skills that you, that are really, yeah. It did. Yeah, it did. I think you're right. It has taken a while because there are so many people who have such difficult and traumatic upbringings um, where there's not food on the table, where they're freezing cold, where they, you know, whatever, where they have never even seen a horse, much less owned a bunch of them. And, you know, I, it's been really hard to, to um, let myself acknowledge that I had a rough childhood behind closed doors when it's not in the sort of obvious ways and when so many people have had it bad, but Mm -hmm. it is, it is very, I mean, we all growing up, especially when you're an adolescent and, you know, your friends are starting and classmates are starting to have a lot of freedoms. Um, And to not have that is just emotionally so difficult. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to feel like they're different, especially back in teenage years or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I relate to that. Did you ever, feel or suspect or wonder or hear whispers behind doors like so many people talk about that your um that a dna discovery was in your future never absolutely never entered my mind my father and i did were quite different in that he was uh, quite short particularly as american men tend to go and um my mother wasn't particularly tall, and I ended up, you know, by high school being a few to several inches taller than they are. Uh, I looked a fair amount like my father. I mean, it could be definitely, you know, easily be seen as his biological daughter. So, so there was always that, you know, th- that sort of um, the height, and maybe that was really the only thing that ever came up. And that was just kind of easily explained. Uh, there was never really much of an explanation, but I didn't really feel there needed to be one. Figured there was some genes somewhere that were taller genes. And- right. I always think of teenagers, that's a part of having a teenager is that eventually they're taller than the parents. Yeah. Like yeah. that's so common as that's a right. sort of a discussion about growth. And so, yeah. so that, so especially if it's just a few inches, I would definitely not question it. Yeah, it wasn't dramatically different. And I looked more like my mother. So, it, you know, I, I looked quite a bit like my mother. But even with that, there wasn't really a question of do I not look like my father? Just, right. Yeah. We were close enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So no, no suspecting whatsoever. So then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Want me to jump to the DNA? To yeah. And then I think go to the surprise. Yeah. Yeah. So I... Uh, in I was 54 oh, years old. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt. Yeah. By the time you yeah. took the surprise, 
Mm-hmm. What was the relationship like with your parents? Oh yeah, I, you let's are, just yeah, you know, let's just before we get yeah. to the surprise part. What yeah. did, what had happened between childhood in Atlanta and being fifty four in the relationship? Not all the details. <laughs> not, <laughs> sure, right. not a timeline. Just the relationship. As a young adult, I was on pretty good terms with both parents. Uh, I had managed to you know start. I guess when I went off to college. My mother got kind of distracted. My parents divorced before my senior year of college. And I now know that my my mother was, you know, very quickly involved um, with the man that she would marry, who'd become her second and final husband. And so she was just kind of distracted. And so even during college, I she didn't keep real close tabs on me. And so from that point on, as an adult, because uh, I never lived back. At, I lived with my father one summer after college. But other than that, I never lived, um, you know, back at home or anything. So, so I was able to be much more independent. And I was kind of caught under my mother's spell at that point. I, I, I'd always been a little different from the world she brought me up in. That world of, you know, like debutante balls and the horse show circuit and all that. I never fully bought into it. I always felt like I was I was born a little too late to truly be a hippie, but I'd always kind of felt like I wanted to be one. And yet, uh, and I'm not proud of this, and yet as a young adult, when I would have an opportunity to go on some fabulous trip with her and my stepfather, because she remarried shortly after the divorce, uh, I jumped on the opportunity. And, um, and, and so... We had just sort of a superficial relationship that was just based on some travel together and, you know, superficial conversations on the phone and visits home to Atlanta. I, I By that time, I'd gone to college in Massachusetts and lived in New York. No, then lived in L.A. for grad school, then lived in New York, then moved back to Atlanta in my 30s. Um, and when I got married and had a two-year-old daughter. So the relationship was not bad, but it it got worse because then once I had married and had a child, my mother just, she had been happy in her second marriage, but she started to seem to be unhappy. She stayed with him until they both died, um, uh, her first and then him the next year. But it just, she seemed like such an unhappy person. She really kind of always had, but I started to recognize it more. And she started kind of taking it out on me. There would just be, um, she was awful to my husband. I've also since divorced and remarried, but she was horrible to my husband at times. Um, She uh, was very controlling and meddling with how I raised my daughter. I know that's not that uncommon, but no, it was was in in keeping with her patterns. And so the relationship got increasingly strained. And by the time I was in my late 40s into my early 50s and at that point as my daughter is you know growing into her teen years and i've divorced was single for a couple of years met a man dated and now we've been married and and it's wonderful a great relationship and and my daughter's doing well um but we had some real rough patches with my mother she just became like a nightmare just um um hateful texts and emails to my daughter and to me and just really kind of losing her mind. Did you feel a shift or notice a shift for yourself when you had your own daughter in the way that you, you 
looked at your own childhood in relationship with your mom? Uh, yeah, I did. I mean, I, I, I was real, I, I was sort of vigilant about trying not to be um, the same kind of mother. And of course, I was slipping into similar patterns. Um, I probably went too far in being too lenient and lax, and, you know, not overprotective. But yes, it, and it was really also sad, because I realized what I could have had. Yeah, you know, the, yeah, I, I, I'm I know my daughter wouldn't say that I was a perfect mother as she was coming up, but but I was certainly different than how mm -hmm. my mother had been with me. And uh, so it was sad to see how things could have been different. I think that happens a lot with, with women, especially when they have their own, if they have daughters. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Continue. No, that's okay. That's okay. So um, my relationship with my father stayed... Um, Stayed very positive all his life. Uh, he died in 2018, so um, and in his 80s, um, and and yet it too was superficial, but in a different way. With my mother, it was superficial because I now know, after a lot of therapy and, and reflection on it, that I, you know, I I had to keep myself contained in a little box with my mother. If I ever showed emotion or was not perfect. Um, it, I, there was hell to pay. And, and so I just learned with my mother never to talk about anything serious. We didn't have like heart to heart talks, mother daughter chats. It was pretty superficial because that was my way I had to protect myself. With my father, it was different. We had the occasional heart to heart talk. He, um, he certainly always seemed somewhat receptive to being close with me. And yet, there did always seem to be something that just kept him also at a superficial level. He kept he kept me at arm's length, not necessarily literally, you know, he'd be loving. Mm -hmm. uh, even at one point when my daughter, um, a lot of years actually from her age two to 13-ish, uh, uh, we lived right next door to my father. So, um, you know, so we were in each other's lives a lot. But the conversations were like you would have with acquaintances, neighbors you don't know well that you've had over for dinner, and you talk mm -hmm. about the best new restaurants in town and how good the food is somebody's cooked, and you know, ask my daughter how school was. You know, it's just mm -hmm. very mm -hmm. it always seemed like there was something my father just kind of couldn't fully bring to the world. Mm. I'm, you know, I know now, of course, a whole lot more <laughs> about what he was not bringing to the world, but. Um, I was kind of aware of something at the time. So thank you. Now the test. Yeah. So it's 54. My husband had done a 23 and me just because he was dealing with some allergy things and some stuff that a nutritionist was helping him with. So he, she had him do the 23 and me to have the medical report. And I thought, Oh, that's so interesting when I saw his results. So I thought I would do a DNA test and I did ancestry instead. No particular reason, probably an ad, went across my screen or something and clicked on the special, you know. And so I did it mostly because I was just sort of curious about seeing more about my ethnicity. I had grown up thinking that I was mostly French, bit of English, bit of, you know, um, definitely some a fair amount of Native American on my mother's side. And um, but really, my whole identity had been French. It's my last name. It's my mm -hmm. you know, father's last name. It's his heritage. And uh, 
I loved. I took French class all the way through advanced placement French in 12th grade and traveled in France a number of times. So I was just like really, you know, a Francophile. And it feels like French goes well with being Southern. Oh, it does. It does. I, yeah. I mean, it's mo- I yeah. guess mostly New Orleans, but but for some reason, it feels like drinking tea on the porch in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. being French. You know. Yeah, that's right. It was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we lived in a house that was, you know, by a prominent architect who wasn't French, but it was designed in a French style, like a sort of French country manor house, and and yeah, it just fit with the whole persona that my mm-hmm. mother wanted us to have, and um, so I just did it for fun. And I got the results and they seemed a little odd at the time. The ethnicity results seemed a little weird. I was heavily Irish, not a whole lot of French, but the way they're lumped together, you know, sort of Western European is lumped together. And um, and I did some quick research at the time and, and now know much more about it, but I'm aware that the ethnicity breakdown on those tests is... Uh, always evolving, always improving. So I didn't think much of it. And then in terms of the matches, the DNA matches to other people, there was there were no close relations. There was mostly like third, fourth, or or more distant cousins. And I didn't recognize surnames, but you know, I had operated in such a tiny little world as an only child. My father was an only child. My mother had one brother who had an only child. So, you know, outside of grandparents, one aunt, one uncle, one cousin, and parents, I I knew like four or five surnames and that was it. So I thought, okay, one day when I'm not busy, I will go in here and really dig through these, maybe contact some of these people. I'll build a family tree and I'll figure it all out. And that was it. Two years later, I had not gone back into my ancestry results ever at all. And I, uh, my husband and I were going to Ireland um, it was actually through my work. Um, the university I worked for was playing a football game in Ireland, a college football game. Oh, fun. So, yeah. So, um, so two American university teams were going to be playing over there. And I, um, so we decided to go and make a little also vacation out of it. Yeah. On some days to travel around. I'd never been to Ireland. I love all things green. And so I just always kind of thought Ireland seemed like an amazing place. So silly reason to like it. I know there's more to the country. No. You know, I just, it just seemed, I was just thinking like, I was just thinking how lovely and sweet to, I mean, I love beautiful scenery of, you know, like blue sky, white clouds, green grass. That's just my favorite visual out in the world in nature. And so I was getting these emails every day from the people who organized the football game and sort of some tourist activities around it. And one of them said, check out this Irish heritage museum while you're there since I guess since so many Americans have Irish heritage, you know, they thought it was a safe bet to to promote that particular um, activity. And I thought, oh, yeah, you know, my ancestry results had said I had a lot of Irish in me. So let me go back in there. And maybe I don't remember if it said something any more specific, like a county I'm from or something. So I'm at my work at a university, just sitting there at lunchtime, having a sandwich at my desk. And I just, you know, log back into Ancestry after all the, you know, forgot password kind of stuff since I hadn't been in two years. And I get in and I have a notification. I didn't even go right to the ethnicity part. I have a notification of a close family match. And I go and it, they don't specify, you know, the exact connection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It could be anywhere from a sibling to, a, I can't remember the range, but, you know, sibling, first cousin, right. 
grandparent, that aunt, kind of thing. Uncle, something, uh, aunt, yeah. uncle, yeah, uh -huh. whatever they define as the close family match. And, and then in the fine print where they give their confidence level, they say high level of confidence that it's a valid match. And I recognized the last name as family friends from when I was a child, the uh -huh. match of this person. Um, because he was listed only with his initials, you know, your display name, you could be just initials if you want. But a lot of times, as you may know, a family member or somebody administers someone's pro, um, mm -hmm. profile mm -hmm. for them. And so she, who I now know is his wife, uh, had um, her full name there, her first and last name. And then the initials of the person I was matched with had the same first, you know, last name mm -hmm. initial. Mm -hmm. So it was all kind of assumptions there, but I'm thinking, I, it's like I knew from that name, I knew who it was, and I realized, so this means this person is my brother. Uh, and I, sh I was surprised, but not shocked, which is mm -hmm. weird. I was surprised because I didn't wake up. It was a Tuesday in August, a pretty busy work day. Um, lots going on. We were planning a big event and I just like, it was the last thing on my mind, of course, that this would happen because I hadn't suspected it. But the weird thing was I wasn't shocked. It was just like, oh, okay, this makes sense. And I, I huh. accepted it immediately. And I know a lot of people don't. A lot of people are like, oh, there must be a mix up at the lab. I just immediately knew it was as if my life made sense even though I'd never thought my life didn't make sense. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good statement. Yeah. I think people, I know I'm not alone in relating to that. Like I had never, ever questioned it. And yet all these pieces fell together in that moment. Right. Right. Huh. People, people talk about, um, I've heard even one of your other guests in a, in a different episode talking about a, a near-death experience she had and, you know, the proverbial life flashes before mm -hmm. you, you know, as that's happening. This was like that, but it was almost like the opposite. It was like being born, um, sort of like a rebirth with a whole new father and my life flashing before me of what life had been before that. And just bizarre, the images. It was it was truly like, like the old-fashioned slide sort of clunking through in one of those slide carousels um, with uh -huh. these just still images I would have from throughout my life with that family. Wow. And things that at the time I didn't think anything of all of a sudden made sense in a, in a way that or was, were significant. It's so wild what our mind is holding on to in there. Right? Like, it almost, I almost wonder if everything is actually in there. You just need the right, you need the right button to be pushed or the right file to be recalled and then, and then it will all come up. But that's right. Do we have all these things we're just not conscious of, but they're there if you can, if something yeah. brings them out. So you knew, and you knew immediately. And this is, <laughs> I've talked before about how I don't quite, I, I, I don't know that I would have put all of these pieces together when I saw my mm -hmm. test results. Mm -hmm. But you knew immediately it meant that that man was your father and that well, your mom, you know, like. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I knew it was, I guess it, it is so hard to 
I mean, I'm always one to write down things and I always make sense of things by writing it. So I did immediately take some notes and I'm glad I did because now it feels sort of like a blur, you know, Uh thinking back to those split seconds when all this is going through my mind. Because there's some contradiction. Like I thought that immediately, but then I set out to figure out who he was, right? Before Uh contacting him, you know, I'm sort of spying on everybody online and, um, just trying to figure out is this a cousin or whatever, but it it just somehow I just kind of knew that was the only thing that made sense mm-hmm. because I knew that my mother, the, the the two couples, he and his wife and my parents that I'd grown up with um, were just very close and they were close from dental school when my two fathers were together as classmates and the wives were there. It was the 1950s. It was a typical thing where even though my mother was actually quite accomplished, she was a pre-med student. When my dad went to dental school, she went to the same university as a to finish up her undergrad as a pre-med student, chemistry major, and then worked in a um in a um uh, a big big brand name food manufacturing company as in like in the chemistry lab, uh, you know, like in a lab sort of uh-huh. testing food. And uh, but it was the they were the wives wearing pearls and long skirts and, you know, serving punch at the dental fraternity party kind of thing. So uh-huh. they had this whole life together. And then as I grew up, like up into my, I can't pinpoint the year that we stopped being friends with them. Uh, we sort of drifted apart as family friends, but uh-huh. maybe 11 or 12 years old. And as I grew up, I was very aware that my mother and the father of the family were we're just really particularly friendly. I mean, obviously now mm-hmm. I know really friendly, but um, <laughs> like naked friendly. Yeah, naked. Yeah, <laughs> the ultimate. At least once. Um, but yeah. right, very friendly. But, mm-hmm. um, but you know, so I had that sense of it. So that's why it kind of made sense right. that you know some other convoluted and you know there's there's that basic sort of principle in life that usually the simplest answer, the simplest solution is the one, and anything yeah. more complicated that I then started to think about like okay, well, maybe this is a cousin. And, and, you know, my mother didn't realize that that family's, that man's sister was her, blah, 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 you know, mm-hmm, it just didn't mm-hmm. um, but I didn't have to guess for too long, because very shortly after that, I think a day or so after um, I messaged within the ancestry, you know, private message box, I messaged um, them, the administrator and, um, and, what turned out to be my half brother. And the interesting thing is he had done his results several months before also just for fun. His wife was doing them and um, they got like a two for one deal with ancestry, you know, so she, he did it too. He wasn't particularly interested in doing it. And um, he also had not looked at his results and to go in that week and see his see that I, I was a match. And I had my full name in there as display name, or at least my full last name. I don't recall. And so he knew all right off the bat as well. So you grew up with him. Really happened. At yeah. least you grew up with him at least until you were 12. Yes. As a friend, as a family friend. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 He and his brother and um, uh, what I now know are my first cousins. Um, they We used to go to their lake house. They taught me to water ski. Uh, we went to cookouts at each other's backyards. You know, the whole typical thing family friends might do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yep. Yeah, so we connect, we messaged each other. And then that led to a phone call pretty shortly after that. Um, he and his wife were amazingly wonderful, loving and welcoming. 
they were mostly there. I knew they were good people when, when they just kept saying they were about me. How was this hitting me? How was, you know, how was I dealing with this? And that I just felt very comforted by and really, you know, grateful for. Hmm. Um, I do have three other half siblings who I then came to meet, you know, in the course of the following months or year or so. And I just haven't gotten as close with them. They're, they've all been, you know, I've been very lucky that they've all been um, uh, welcoming. I know some of them would rather this never happened. You know, it's, it's sure. not been like they've been thrilled about it, but um, they've all been as, you know, as good as they could be to me. They've, they have absolutely done their best um, to be compassionate and friendly and welcoming and caring Mm -hmm. they certainly Um, it sounds like they certainly don't think it's your fault and where is the what is the age timeline where you yeah um, two two are yeah two um a brother and sister are a little bit younger than i am and two brothers are a bit older than i am Uh uh-huh okay yeah so you know i knew all of them as a child but i don't i don't remember the younger ones as well they would have been very young if it all if everybody drifted Mm -hmm. apart around 12 right yeah so that was the day of the discovery Wow. Okay. Wow. And were your mother and father still alive at that point? They were. Um, My father had uh, my my father. My I choose to use the term raising father. I know some people use birth certificate father, but I and which I don't begrudge anybody using that term. I understand it, but I do feel like the father I grew up with really felt like a dad, you know, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. to me. So I just I kind of refer to him as my raising raising father. Um, he had, let's see, the year before had started, we'd started to become aware he had dementia. And so he was still very much recognizing everyone and, you know, able to carry on a conversation, but he had moved to assist and then a nursing home. And so he was not, he was just not in a, you know, not that I would have necessarily told him anyway, or asked him about it without knowing if he knew or not, but I, with dementia, I was not going to say anything to him. You know, his memory span was a matter of minutes and I would have had to tell him 50,000 times over the course of the rest of his life. So (laughs) he's not going to do that. Plus if he didn't know, I didn't want to break his heart at that point in his life. My mother, on the other hand, was totally there cognitively, um, nastier than ever. (laughs) So, um, and by the way, I've been working a lot on on you know having compassion for her. I, I I'm not angry with her for what she did, having an affair, but um, not that I condone affairs. But I there were circumstances um, that I understand, and you know she did what she did. It's not that. It's more the keeping of the secret and how she acted after she knew the secret was out. That mm-hmm. that I have trouble having good thoughts about her around but she she and i had not talked for a year i almost yeah it was about a year and that prior year we talked only because i invited her to my wedding my second my wedding to my second husband we were estranged but not so estranged that i didn't want to include her in that so at least she and my stepfather came as did my raising father and uh, some family friends kind of helped him out since he was you know a little muddled in social situations with the dementia. Um, prior to the wedding, I hadn't talked to my mother in about a year. So, you know, a lot of estrangement. So I called her and told her what I had found. And she first first tried to deny it, but that lasted, you know, a matter of nanoseconds. 
And when I told her I had done a DNA test, and you know, especially as a former chemist, she couldn't deny the science. So she's. I don't know why, said, that's, I don't know why that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> because I, because I know I've heard stories of people where they do, you know. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So she said, "Well, let's." get together and talk about it. Let's have lunch. So we got together the next day, lunch at her and my stepfather's club, you know, country club. Of course. Club. <laughs> Where else? Where yeah. else? Yeah. Where else right. would you get a good shrimp salad? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Caesar salad with shrimp on it, actually. Yeah. How did you guess? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I've, been to a, I've been to a country club in my life. Yeah. I had a grandma yeah. named Grandma Ginger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course it had to be on her, in her territory. Right. And right. like, the executor of her will was one table away, just by chance. I don't think she orchestrated that. And <laughs> other people she knew were all around, you know, so there's lots of coming around and hugs and, you know, mm-hmm. back slaps. And we're going to keep shade. this light. And it was pretty horrible. Um, oh, I, I went, uh, I'd, I'd seen my therapist the night before in an emergency scheduled session. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we talked about how this could be, a, it could possibly be a watershed event that that my mother would like, you know, relieved of her big secret that she'd kept all her life, we could have a normal relationship, but neither of us was very hopeful that that would be the case. Sure. Instead, you know, we spent a lot of time kind of preparing me, bracing me for some, you know, real heartache. And um, so I felt prepared. Um, but one can never totally prepare. Um, I was going to say, like, as prepared as one can be yes, exactly. for something called heartache. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, that's like, right. it's feel, it makes me feel yeah. like, it reminds me of, like, when you know a, a, you're going to, a, spl- a slap is coming. Like, even if you know it's coming or it, mm-hmm. you, you can't, what, yeah. what do you do? Yeah, exactly. Right, right. You, you, you can only do so much. So I went to the lunch with three questions. One was, did my raising father know about this? The other was, did my biological father know about this? And the third was not like one clear-cut question. It was more kind of a collection of questions, which, again, I now know and, you know, reflecting on this so much and writing about it is that third collection of questions was really, did he love me? Did my biological father love me? Did he know me? And did he love me? I was asking it, though, the, the, you know, the questions on the surface, though, were more... um, was he aware, you know, did they stay in touch? Did he and my mother stay in touch over the years? Was he aware of any, you know, sort of developments throughout my life? At what point did we uh, drift apart as friends? I couldn't pinpoint that. And the first two questions she answered pretty straightforward. She, that's if I can believe her, I don't know. She said that my raising father did not know that I was not his. She said my biological father did know that I was his. And that the only other person on earth who also knew was his mother, which since then has come as a huge surprise to everybody in his family, my half siblings, my um, first cousins, and an aunt, a biological aunt, my, my biological father had already died. Actually, if the match had happened when I first took ancestry and saw my results, he would have been alive for about another seven or eight weeks after I'd gotten my results, if the match had happened, if my half-brother had tested back then Uh or anyone in the family. Right as you described, you described the moment as a rebirth, and I'm now seeing the two of you pass 
yeah. existences oh, right. kind of right, right. like this moment oh, is that gives me chills when you yeah, say yeah when yeah, yeah like oh. he you were entering yeah. this new existence and he was like leaving this plane is somehow that, yeah yeah, huh. yeah. Wow. so um but his sister was alive and was amazing like just i got she then unfortunately died at the age of 90 just before the covid pandemic started and so i got to know her you know before we all had to isolate and so i got to be around her a lot got to go to her 90th birthday party went out to lunch with her she lived just down the road from me five ten minutes away had and had all those years because you were living in atlanta still at this time not a not an island in maine <laughs> What's it like? that's right and the other new you know so-called new relatives were all you know were, were within the southeast at least mm-hmm so I was glad I got to know her, but it was a surprise to her as well. So then the third questions, you know, I started just kind of asking those things about when we fell apart from the family and, you know, what happened over the years, was he aware of me? And she wouldn't really answer those. She, uh, she denied an affair, like an ongoing long-term thing. She said it was a transaction that she couldn't have children with my father. She'd miscarried a, miscarried a couple of times with my raising father and was told by her OBGYN back then that it was his fault that a, a, you know, pregnancy, a, a pregnancy wasn't viable. And so she arranged, she said, you know, asked the family friend secretly to uh, conceive me with. I have lots of other evidence, including from my, my aunt, um, uh, on my mother's side, um, that there was very obvious, blatant evidence of an affair from the 1950s, well into the 60s, and maybe into the 70s. Well, maybe it was a transaction again and again and again. Exactly. <laughs> the difference in those two truth, you know, truths or or stories, like what, uh, versions, I guess, because one version is that this was a one-time transaction purposefully for for conception mm -hmm. only mm -hmm. makes it one kind of story yep. and then this over the decades affair makes it a completely different story like the that's different right. that's like they could not be i guess there's there could be more opposite but that is really two different very different exactly and and it's all about her saving face mm -hmm. and keeping up appearances the transaction version makes it almost sound like or in a passive aggressive way what else was she supposed to do that's right that's right <laughs> she couldn't have children yeah she actually even said in that same breath because i wanted to be a mother so badly and of course in my own muttering under my breath it's like yeah because you did such a good job of it you know? right like, yeah, you were really into it <laughs> so oh um, oh that's hard yeah well. but that yes exactly it was like she made a sacrifice for me almost you know mm -hmm. to to um uh yeah i mean there's been this whole theme in our lives that i i just had to be perfect and and you know i had mentioned that she was pre-med well she got to the interview stage of med school uh also at the same university where my dad was in dental school where she'd been an undergrad and she was applying in the second year that they were letting women into the med school wow. and she made it to the interview round and then got rejected and she found out later nobody would admit this now because there'd be legal hell to pay but but 
she was point blank told by somebody there that they didn't let her in because she was married and they were afraid she'd get pregnant and drop out to start a family. And the others they let in were not married. Oh, wow. So I grew up here. I knew very few stories of my parents' past because my mother was, you know, just trying to kind of create a life for us and, and, downplay their more modest upbringing. And my dad, raising dad, grew up very, very poor um, with a single mother. And, you know, she didn't want me to know really anything about that. So I never heard stories about family or their their childhoods or their past. But my mother, I always heard that story. So I, you know, I, I think I probably developed this sense that if I, um, if my mother had, you know, if motherhood was kind of the consolation prize for my mother because she wanted to be a doctor, I had to be the perfect child, the perfect daughter. You better make you better make it worth it. Yeah, yeah. So, so the lunch was pretty horrible because I really didn't get anything out of her. She took to just bashing my raising father, ending it with telling me that I was not to tell anybody about any of this that it's not my business to tell. Oh. Yeah, it's not my business to tell. By the way. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. No, I didn't go blasting it on social media um, or send out a mass mailing to everybody I know, but certainly I had to tell people for various reasons, for support, for not wanting to have a secret kept from people that know everything else about me. And I did get to a point where I was later in the story and even at, she died then the following summer that was October and then she died the following summer and had not been sick she just suddenly became sick with what turned into pneumonia she'd been f- refusing to go to the doctor I actually consider it that she killed herself by willing herself to die I mean that's just me thinking of her as so controlling that she could actually do that um but she uh, by the time my stepfather, insisted that he call an ambulance she had to go almost straight into hospice because sepsis had set in wow and she died within like 24 hours so um it it seemed to be more than she could bear and after i guess after a lifetime of just being so focused on looking good to the outside world so she started, uh, I did, well, so I did tell my daughter who had just started college in Louisiana, in New Orleans, and I went in person um, down there to tell her she wasn't surprised. <gasps> yeah. Oh, interesting. I was so nervous to tell her. I'd scripted what I was going to say. I was shaking because she was really, my daughter was so close with my raising father her grandfather Mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. was really wonderful to her she adored him and again he was still alive um but to tell her you know that he wasn't biologically her grandfather was just really scary for me and in an uncanny way the universe can work she and her roommate the night before keep in mind they're just a few weeks into being in school together and living in a dorm room together she and her roommate had just been talking about their families and my daughter had said that she said to her roommate that she doesn't understand how i her mom came from my parents because i'm so different from both of them and um and and so she said she just wasn't surprised i think later it it sank in and she had to process it and it's been hard for her, but uh, it, 
that was weird. So anyway, but my mother was sending me, you know, just nasty messages when she realized I learned that I told my daughter, I told a close family friend, you know, that flipped my mother out. She found out and she just couldn't bear it, couldn't stand for people to know. And, and then I think too, and this is the part of me that's trying to muster up compassion for her. And I don't tend to use the word forgiveness. It's so laden with a lot of like judgment, like, you know, you have to forgive or assumptions that if you don't forgive, you're just hurting yourself because you're holding all this anger, resentment. And I guess you don't really believe in that. I, I, I think I can certainly become a not angry, not resentful person and also not forgive. So I, I've just kind of given up on like, I just set aside forgiveness as a concept and I focus on compassion and understanding and trying to see what happened and my biological father also did divorce. He divorced um, quite a number of years before my mother divorced my raising father. And then he remarried. So it was kind of like if they were involved in an ongoing affair, he didn't wait for her. And a, 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 an adult older person than I am in the family has said to me that she knows from conversations with my mother at that time, that she was devastated by that, that he didn't wait for her, that he remarried. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so I think probably not only was my mother so losing it because she no longer, because her secret was out, but because it probably stirred up in her all those sad, the sadness and the loss. And keep in mind, my biological father had just died two years before. And I know she knew that. I've, I've actually seen those legacy sites on online where you can sign the guest book online when someone where the obituary is. And I've seen her, I've seen my mother's name on mm. uh, on some of those sites um, of, of that family. So, you know, so yeah, I think she probably just wanted, didn't want to live anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then my father died the following summer, uh, you know, about a, a little over a year later, um, just a very natural causes, a respiratory infection that he was just, he'd gotten too weak to, to survive, died very peacefully in his sleep. And, um, but, you know, died not without me talking about it. So whether he knew or not, I don't know. I don't know if my mother's telling the truth. He may have suspected. I don't know. And so what's your journey been like? Um, well, let's say, let me see this. Uh, you're, you're very open about writing a book about your experience. Mm -hmm. And so what is it that you're, what's your goal? What's your, what's your goal with your book? Or what is it that you want to communicate about your story? My primary goal is more personal. Um, I do plan to finish the book. I do plan to seek an agent and or publisher. Um, so I'm taking it very seriously, but there won't be a book without me continuing to write my own story. And so uh, I, I've mentioned therapy a number of times. I'm, I'm with a an amazing therapist who is uh, doing really deep work with me because this is, of course, the situation like this stirs up a lot of things for a lot of people who experience it. For me, it has been about really an issue of identity and I know that's also kind of obvious that, you know, we, it, it, for many of us, it means a different, you know, ethnic identity. Sometimes it's a dramatic racial difference. Uh, they aren't who they thought they were. Um, 
it's different in terms of our family alignment. Who do we belong to? But the common theme throughout my whole life, you know, growing up in an environment where we were already sort of imposters, you know, operating in a world that we didn't really belong in. At least we weren't, you know, we belonged. I mean, in that we could fake it, <laughs> you know, we, it wasn't really gen, it wasn't authentically us. I had always been a person who straddled worlds, you know, it, it, as a kid or a teenager in school, I could be with the jocks, the cheerleaders, the bands, the Latin nerds, the, you know, you name it. I was a floater, but then always with one or two really close friends who were also kind of similar. I'm nodding. I'm nodding yeah, in yeah, a yeah, strong, yeah, you know. strong connection with that. Yeah. Right. And and then just every aspect of my life, I've always been, I still sort of fluctuate, but, uh, you know, between am I the, am I the Southern belle who grew up in high society and can set a gorgeous dinner table and knows how to write a wonderful thank you note? Or am I that person who at times in college just wanted to just like, you know, have a long, my hair braided down the back and be wearing a peasant shirt and, you know, hanging out just being totally unpretentious. So, and I mean, even in terms of like religious beliefs and faith and spirituality, I have, I've run the gamut from, you know, christened as baptized as an Episcopalian to, as Episcopal to, um, you know, Buddhist to atheist, agnostic, the whole range. So every aspect of my life, I've always felt like personality and sort of socioeconomic position and who I like to be around. I've always straddled worlds. And then moving to Maine three years ago, full-time, um, I very much straddle worlds. We live on a um, not touristy island. We live on a very active, working, lobstering, fishing island with people who've been here for generations and with people like us who've moved from cities, who had professional careers that they're either still doing remotely or retired from. And so I literally step out my door and, you know, could walk left to one sort of side of the world and walk right to another side of the world or the community and be just as happy with all. And through all of that, I think is that loneliness that was there as a child. It's I'm getting my story, I think, is the resolution that I'm close to is being comfortable with being in that in-between place, being a mm -hmm. sort of liminal being. Oh, wow. Who lives in that world in between. And, you know, if you go back to the Greek goddess Hecate, she was one of the most powerful goddesses and she lived in the borderlands. She could have one foot on each side. She saw it all, but she never had that place on one side or the other mm. or in the afterworld or the underworld or the mortal world or whatever. And, uh, and so I've really been trying to get comfortable with, I think all my life, I thought one day I'll figure out who I am and I'll just have like this clear persona that I put out to the world and that I know I am and I'll have this identity and it's gelled and it's set. And then this came along at the age of 54 and it's taken me, you know, now several years to be still processing it. And I was panicking, like, wait a minute. I'm supposed to have myself figured out by now, like way before now. And now I'm not even close. It's like, I got to start all over again. And so the point I'm reaching is, and not, not that I believe everybody needs to think this, but I believe that we all, we never really gel, <laughs> that mm -hmm. we never really, that the beauty of life is that we're always changing and that we're always influenced by what happens to us. We were shaped by 
our experiences who were around and and that and that we can be a sort of in-between person so that's that's where in my writing that's where the story has gone and then in my own work therapeutically and dreams even and just thinking about it that's where it's going and it's it's really nice it's 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 a good feeling to it mm -hmm. takes such a burden off to feel yeah. like who am i because when this first happened you know the identity crisis was like okay well now i don't even know i'm not really french anymore now i'm like german and irish and scottish and um but i am still somewhat french and uh because there's a bit on my mother's side and you know and and do i belong to that family or this one because i'll never fully belong to the biological family right i'll never fully fit in no matter how mm -hmm. nice they are to me we don't have the shared history as much as if, as if i'd fully grown up with them and been with them all these years so you know the one foot in one family and but not fully there and the shaky foot in my old family which now doesn't even really exist you know not no one left but my a cousin and an, and an aunt from my mother's side mm -hmm. so um yeah so that's been the story wow Michelle, that's really beautiful. Um, and a really, I don't know if I've heard that before, uh, but I really connect with it. It really resonates with me. And I guess, I guess there are things we say, like, it's not the destination, it's the journey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the way you're describing it, I didn't expect to um, relate so much to, to the internal experience of, of yeah. feeling lonely and never quite fitting in and um mm -hmm. finding out that that maybe that's just a part of it <laughs> um right and and so yeah. and therefore you know what can you do with that um i really love that i really love that and um as someone who was who is a therapist who got her master's in a in a depth program which is very focused on like myths <laughs> and archetypes um that you brought up hecate is it was it was felt sort of synchronistic today. And um, if somebody was to come to you today and said, and were just fresh, brand new in their DNA discovery, do you have any advice or things that you wished you had known or resources you, you know about now that you would pass on? Uh, certainly in terms of resources, it took me a while to realize how many uh, Facebook groups are out there that are so supportive. Um, and um, you know, lots of good books that that uh, I've read so many memoirs um, have all been very helpful. Um, I know you have resources listed on your website, I think, didn't I see at some point? Mm -hmm. um, I do, I do. Yeah, so, you know, all of those, I've gotten something out of those. So I would encourage people, if it's just happened and, you know, if they're hearing this, then maybe they're already aware, but they, it, if they're okay with, if they're on Facebook or okay with joining, then uh, that has been very helpful absolutely therapy or some sort of professional counseling is just so key and then but but beyond that i'd say to respect your own version of how you're going to process it mm. um, I, that's the other thing i've had to realize is um, respect it but also recognize it and let me backtrack a second because mine has been an uh, this could be a whole other podcast episode, so I won't launch into it too long. But mine has been really a backwards emotional journey because I, you know, kind of accepted it immediately, met family immediately. I didn't have any long search and all the agony that comes with not knowing who's who and trying to meet them or anything. And and then I just came into it such a not 
emotional person, not in touch with my emotions. So really going through life, you know, still acting as an adult like that perfect 10 year old, you know, who had to ride the horse perfectly over the fence without a hair out of place under her beautiful black velvet helmet, you know? And so, um, I, so I just came to this like, oh, okay, this is just an interesting research project. Now it's sort of an interesting problem to solve. I'm going to find out everything I can, and I'm going to meet all my new family and I'll just, I have instant family now. Uh, Isn't this fun? You know? And Little by little, over a period of a couple, few or more years, it was eating away at me. And I was not in a great place psychologically and realized because I wasn't really dealing with the real issues. And I wasn't letting myself grieve and mourn and feel. And my therapist still jokes that, you know, when she asks how I feel about something, I pull out my vast repertoire of good, bad, happy, sad, angry, (laughs) scared, you know, and I'm really trying to move past those basic adjectives of feelings. But so, so my, on the one hand, I need to, I recommend to others to do what I've been trying to do, which is respect that however you go through this is okay. There is no one right way. And at the same time, though, to be honest with yourself. So like in my case, I wasn't being honest with myself that I needed to deal with deeper stuff, that it shouldn't be so easy. It isn't so easy. And so even if somebody has sort of the more so-called typical reaction of being very upset and unhappy and sad and all those things first, um, maybe even seeing a little flip side of, you know, saying, okay, but what else could I be doing that's more sort of how will more practical things help me? How will it be practical? How will it be helpful to just get answers if there are answers or, you know, have, have a DNA search angel help you with that. So that's, that's what I think. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. So glad to do it. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, oh, just so great to have you. And so, um, lovely also. So we didn't even talk about this at all, but, um, Michelle has participated in my process writing group. I hope that's okay mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm out. Oh, absolutely. Um, yes. I, I, so you're, you've been in this writing group uh, for, for a session or two. And um, so, which is wonderful. So I, I feel like I get to know people, but I've never mm-hmm. really just spent, you know, an hour one-on-one. So it's, it's nice to get to know you a little bit better and learn more about your Island and about yeah, your thank you. life. And I know about your story in different ways because of what's come up in the writing group. So mm-hmm. I know I'm not alone in saying that I'm, a, I'm looking forward to your book's completion so that people um, can get the whole story. Let's just say that this was, this was a, a very um, tip of the iceberg <laughs> version <laughs> of things. More to it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, so I just, yeah. um, I'm, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to it and and want to keep in touch as as that process goes for you. So thank you. I sure will. I appreciate the chance to talk with you like this. It's been great. It's been really fun. So um yeah. So we'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you. All right, Michelle. Great. Okay. Great. Have a good weekend. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi. Hi, it's me. Here's what I wanted to say about talking with Michelle. I was so moved by her descriptions of feeling lonely, of feeling in between worlds or not quite fitting in anywhere. I was really moved by it, and I've been meditating on it for the past few weeks. And I've actually cried about it a few times um, for myself, just including once, big cry, last weekend in my car after leaving an event that I just couldn't get comfortable being at. So I left and I cried in my car about loneliness and always feeling separated by something. Um, and I just feel like Michelle understood that or or the way she talked about it really moved me in a way that made me feel like, you know what, I just, it really resonated with me. Um, so I'm wondering if you feel lonely too, listeners, um, whatever your relationship to DNA discoveries is. And maybe that's a part of this podcast too, or a part of why I do it, so that I can feel connected or something, um, connected to something, or I feel connected to someone, you and me. Next week is episode 100, my friends. Why am I making this a big deal? Because I want to. <laughs> because there was a time when I had zero episodes and I had never done a podcast before. And I was trying to make meaning out of my blown up identity. And now here we are, or there we will be next week at episode 100. I am going to be doing all sorts of fun and silly things as we close in on September 15th, 2023. Um, trying to make this celebration achievement count for something. So keep an eye on social media. That's at Everything's Relative Podcast. That's where I'm making the most announcements, giveaways, some free stuff. Um, I'm also, I'm trying to make an epic 100 song playlist about DNA discoveries to share. So make sure you're paying attention. If you've got a song that you think of that goes with your DNA discovery experience, send it my way so I can add it to the playlist. And hey, if you've been listening for 100 or one episodes um, and you want to support me and you, especially if you really, really want to get some of this free stuff, which I'm so happy to give you. Would you please me do me the easiest free thing in the world and go write a review of this podcast on your listening platform? Please, please, please. Even if it's one word, um, even if the review is negative, reviews keep me alive. They keep the podcast alive. I need them. I don't want to get into the science. Is it a science of algorithms and the way that, that podcasts work? But I will always need reviews as long as this podcast is alive. I know it's repetitive. I'm so sorry. On my gravestone, when I die, it will say, here lies Eve. She needs reviews. <laughs> I'm sorry. But I also know, and I'm not, um, I'm not trying to be ungrateful, but the majority of you aren't reviewing me because I can see the numbers. I see how many people listen and I can see how many people review. And, the, and really, the reason that it matters is so that people can find this podcast. And all I want is for people with DNA discoveries and adoptees struggling with identity, struggling with all the issues we've been talking about for almost a hundred episodes now. I want them to know they're not alone. 
So forget about writing the review for me. Forget about that. Write for the person who's staring at a DNA test result right now and doesn't know what to do or where to go. So you go do that. I will be back next week with cake and free giveaways and a 100th episode. Deal? I always end these episodes with some sort of like funny task I tell you not to forget to do. Um, But for episode 99, I'm not going to do that. Because YOLO, guys. YOLO. This is Everything's Relative. I'm Eve Sturgis. Bye-bye. Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis is produced by Eve Sturgis and Kaylin Egan and edited by Joy Rumor. Logo designed by Ivy McNally and music is used with permission from Goodbye the Band. Eve is a licensed psychotherapist, but her podcast episodes are not therapy sessions. Thank you. Now, the test. Yeah. So, uh, again, I was 24 years old, and I'm sorry. Edit that out. Um, <laughs> oh no, I'm keeping old. that. I'm keeping that mistake. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Freudian slip there. Uh, no, I don't know that I even want to be 24 again.